Hello, and welcome back to Issues in America, where every week we take a closer look into the many ongoing issues that plague the United States. In this episode, we will be looking into the American prison system. Topics include solitary confinement, prison labor, prison violence, COVID-19, and many more. Let's hop right into it. Solitary confinement is occasionally used in most prison systems as a means to maintain prison order. As disciplinary punishment for inmates who are considered a risk to themselves or to a prison order in general. After the rise of the Supermax prison in the 1980s, the use of solitary confinement exploded. Prisoners in solitary confinement will spend 23 hours a day in their cell with little to no social contact with other prisoners or the outside world. In the United States, it is common for prisoners to spend several years, if not decades, under these conditions. Solitary confinement causes massive psychological damage to the prisoners it affects. This is because humans are social creatures, so being deprived of social contact takes its toll on the mind. Inmates suffer hallucinations, panic attacks, paranoia, claustrophobia, among other things. A recent study found that while long-term solitary confinement prisoners account for about 8% of the nation's prison population, they account for 50% of all prison suicides. I'm here with Ray Vasky, a former prisoner who spent 10 months in solitary confinement. Ray, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. That's great to hear. I got a few questions for you here. What was the extent of your social interactions living in solitary confinement? Did you ever get to talk to anyone? Explain that a little for me. Uh, yeah. Not being able to have a decent conversation was one of the worst parts of being in solitary confinement. And believe me, that's saying a lot. I could talk to some of the other prisoners in solitary confinement that were there with me, but I would have to shout through a slit in my door just to get any sound through. I did that as much as I could, but you can only handle shouting for so long. That's very interesting. Could you describe your cell to me? I assume you got a bed and a toilet, but was there anything else there? Besides a small desk in the corner, no, there really wasn't anything else. Uh, cell was about six feet by maybe eight feet. Not much room to maneuver around, that's for sure. The only thing I really could do was just think, and I did a lot of thinking. That sounds like quite the life to live. How long did you spend in solitary confinement, and how did it affect you psychologically? Well, I'd spend about 23 hours a day in there did that for just over 10 months. Uh, the one hour I did get, I used to shower and exercise, but I had to do that alone as well. I guess I didn't have it as bad as some of those other guys may have, but I never thought about suicide or anything like that. When I did have to deal with the constant, was the constant panic attacks. I'm still dealing with them even though I've been out for over a year. Every prisoner has a job. They do everything from making shoes and clothes to manufacturing and construction. Inmates already deprived of basic freedoms must work without the benefit of decent wages, workers' compensation, unions, or protection under OSHA standards. Prisoners make pennies a day while having to work through grueling conditions. Prison labor is not only unsafe, it can be directly tied back to the times of slavery. I'm here with Jeremiah Deed. He has wrote two books about the injustices in our prison system today. You can pick them up on Amazon for a special price this week only. Jeremiah, 
How are you this fine evening? Exquisite. Thanks for asking. All right, I got a few questions for you here. Prison labor is highly scrutinized, and some even compare it to a modern form of slavery. Though obviously not as extreme, could you explain how the roots of prison labor are actually tied back to slavery? Well, thanks for asking. I really believe this is an important topic to cover. Back in 1865, the 13th Amendment officially abolished slavery for all people except those convicted of a crime. That's really important because if you were black, it really didn't take much to be convicted of a crime because of these new things called black codes, which made most legal activities illegal for African Americans. This really opened the door for mass criminalization. Most of these prisons in the South were actually built as a means to re-enslave black workers. Today, we can see the effects of this. African Americans tend to serve longer sentences, have higher arrest as well as conviction rates, and are more often the victims of police brutality compared to other races. The research indicates if incarceration rates continue their current trends, one in four young black males born today will, so, will serve time in prison during their lifetime. That's a very interesting connection. You've mentioned in some of your re writings that prison labor can be hazardous to the health of prisoners. You've also mentioned how prison labor is probably more expansive than you think. Could you elaborate on that for me? Sure. First of all, if prisoners refuse to work, they will often be sent to solitary confinement, so there isn't really much of a choice. The biggest issue when it comes to safety is that prisons often use outdated equipment and fail to properly train prisoners on how to use them. It is not uncommon for inmates to lose fingers or even their entire hand. In terms of how expansive the prison industry is, I'll just say that everyone listening right now has either unknowingly bought a prison-made good or directly benefited from services provided by prison labor. Overcrowding is one of the main reasons for the many problems that we see within the prison system today. This is a result of the rapid incarceration of people that we see in the United States. While it is difficult to spot out a direct relationship between overcrowding of prisons and availability of different resources, it is bound to happen. It is difficult for these prisons to provide all the resources that the prisoners need when they are holding more prisoners than was intended. Ray. During your time here as an inmate, have you seen a direct impact on the number of resources you guys get due to overcrowding? And if so, can you give me an example of some ways? Yeah. It always seems that there are just way too many people in the jail sometimes. There have been a couple of things that I've noticed here, and uh, one of them is that they're stuffing more and more people in here while we're getting access to the same that we had or even less stuff. Nothing's worse than when they're running low on food or something like that. Instead of putting more people in here, maybe they should focus on making these conditions better for us first, you know? Interesting. Does this lack of resources meant for prisoners greatly affect your quality of life in here? Uh, going about your day-to-day -day life is already hard enough being locked up, but when you can't get the resources and treatment that help to make it bearable, it's almost impossible. These conditions in here have to be going against a constitutional right or something. We also need more meaningful work assignments and programs that will help us to get our jobs once we're out. Prison violence is a daily occurrence for many prisoners across the United States. 
over 25% of prisoners admitted to being the victim of a violent attack. Three types of violence occur, inmate on inmate, inmate on guard, and self-inflicted. There are many factors that lead to violence in prison, including gang affiliation, overcrowding, minor disputes, or poor prison design. When looking deeper into what causes violence in prison from a social-psychological standpoint, you find that many prisoners with violent tendencies tend to be younger and have less visitors. There is evidence to support the idea that younger people praise violent acts and aggression with fear and higher regard. Prisons are attempting to combat this by digging deeper into prisoners' records to decide where they would best fit inside the prison and by better training and educating guards. I'm back here with Ray Vasky today. I hope he can give us some valuable insights. Ray, violence in prisons has risen as of recent years. Why do you think that there is so much violence in prisons across America today? Well, to be frank with you, I think there's just too many people in one small space. And when everybody's all close like that, people are going to start fighting. It's honestly just a matter of time. I feel like a lot of these guys aren't really criminals. Like guys who are locked up for petty crimes, drugs and stuff like that. I don't think it's safe to have them with, you know, real, real violent guys. The real criminals. That's very interesting. As we observe current trends in prison violence, do you think there is a particular group of people that tend to experience more violence than other groups? Oh, there definitely is. If you're in for a sex crime like rape or pedophilia, you're definitely in for a rougher time than anyone else. A lot of the inmates have kids and stuff like that, and they really take it to heart when someone gets locked up for a crime like that. I've seen a lot of bad things happen to dudes for being child predators. Also, if you're unlucky enough to be sent to an adult prison as a minor, you're in for a similar, similar fate, seeing as uh, you're an easy target and all. In light of the current newfound confidence in speaking up against sexual assault and sexual abuse, has violence in the form of sexual violence become more or less common in today's prison? Well, I've never really uh, experienced anything like that, and neither have any of my boys that I was in with, but you hear about it happening for sure, and occasionally someone might say they saw something, but it ain't like the movies where there's always sexual abuse and it's almost common. Occasionally someone will have to be moved to a different prison because they got assaulted, but it's not a common occurrence. In today's times of tumultuous health concerns due to COVID-19, one ever-important issue is the spread of illness in our prison system due to the confined nature of our nation's prisons. One would think that good hygiene would be a sufficient place to start to remedy this issue. A recent study indicates to us that 72% of surveyed prisoners said that they had a difficult time finding information relating to maintaining proper hygiene, not to mention some that did find information had a difficult time understanding the pamphlets. On top of the physical spreading, the preventative measures of reducing prisoner interaction led to declines in mental health. Stress, anger, and anxiety reached new heights as some prisoners reported staying in their cells for up to 22 hours each day. Some prisons have taken other measures to promote the safety of the prisoners and guards alike, limiting family visits to lower the likelihood of additional cases being introduced to the prison. I'm back with Jeremiah Deed, who can hopefully provide us with an expert's insight. Jeremiah, since the start of COVID-19, 
How have these measures done at reducing the spread of illness? In my opinion, these measures have done a poor job at preventing the spread. As of August 14th, we have seen over 102,000 positive tests and nearly 900 deaths. Officials need to act quick if they want to save the many lives that rest in our prisons. Either that or come up with a new strategy because our current strategy is not working. From your knowledge, what is the official plan put in place to help slow the spread? You just mentioned that you don't believe our current strategy is effective. Why is that? We have seen a seven-step plan put in place which includes most all the steps people on the outside use. Symptom screenings, isolating with the symptoms, social distancing, heightened cleaning efforts, infection mitigation training, and disinfecting of high-touch surfaces, and face coverings where social distancing isn't an option. Unfortunately, the prison system doesn't receive adequate funding to effectively test and treat prisoners. Our strategy, in essence, would be effective, but the lack of funding negates its potential productiveness. Because of prison size, there is often a failure to rehabilitate the prisoners who enter jail. This is due in part because there are too many prisoners to be responsible for and not enough people to be responsible for them. New programs have come about that reduce the number of nonviolent criminals in jail, and because of this, there has been a greater allocation of resources towards beds and rehabilitation services. This leads to less recidivism and in turn helps to allow the prisons to have more money. With less populations to rehabilitate in jail, it is difficult for professionals to be able to properly rehabilitate inmates. With large prison populations and little staff, it can be hard to gather enough supervision to provide an opportunity to learn skills. I'm here today with George Pommet, a prison guard at a state penitentiary. I'm sure he will be able to give us a unique insight into our prison systems today. George, how are you? Couldn't be better. Thanks for asking. Great to hear. Let's get into a few questions here. First off, how stressful can it be to have such a large number of prisoners to be responsible for on a day-to-day -day basis? You know, it can be extremely stressful for me and my other people that work in the prison. And I, I feel I'm constantly on edge because of how many prisoners I'm responsible for. And my stress tends to lead to higher image stress as well. And the large number of prisoners, from my perspective, just seems to make the situation very tense for everyone. Secondly, would you say that current rehabilitation practices are working? And why do you think that? Quite frankly, I don't and I don't want to put the blame on the prisoners because the criminal justice system today is way too focused on locking people up for life. And they're not putting enough focus and getting them back into the real, real world. I just think we simply can't offer what the inmates need to be completely rehabilitated here. And what might that be? Well, I guess we don't have very many programs that help them with job skills that they can use when they get out of prison. And I think that's why a lot of prisoners end up back here. They just aren't ready for the life on the outside after they get out. As many of you have seen in the news, one topic that has been up for debate is when force is justified. According to sources, the use of force by prison staff presents a certain danger to both parties involved. Now, when we talk about the use of force, we want to be clear about the clear distinction between force and corporal punishment. 
Using force is generally used to maintain order from the inmates, while corporal punishment are actions that are intended to cause pain to the recipient as means of deterring future behaviors. In today's correction system, corporal punishment is illegal and has been since 1968. Over the years, a set of national standards have been set in place to protect the rights of prisoners, but also giving guards the means to de-escalate various situations. Even in the case of a use of force, each incident is reported and reviewed to ensure that it was a justified action by the guard. I'm back with George Pommet. George, what can be described as justified force? Are there any acts that are reserved for extreme cases only? Justified force is when we as prison guards need to protect ourselves from a non-compliant inmate. The main issue that I see in many of the prisons I've worked in is that guards abuse their power by using force even when their safety is in no danger. As for the more extreme cases, we have used tasers, batons, and tear gas in riot situations, though riots are few and far between. The media seems to have fixated on these sort of rogue cops. Do you have any comment on this media attention? Sadly, as I just mentioned, we do see times where these individuals are unjustified force to exert pain onto an inmate. Though, thankfully, most uses of force are reviewed by our superiors. If unjustified force is seen, then immediate action is taken to fix the problem or eliminate it entirely. In this way, we can protect prisoners before a guard's behavior gets out of hand. We need to continue to ensure that guards are held accountable for their actions to ensure safety for the prisoners. Jeremiah, in today's episode, we have dissected just a few of the many issues in our prison systems. In your opinion, what are the most important steps that should be taken in order to fix these issues? Well, the most important step towards improved prison conditions has got to be reducing prison populations. One possibility to accomplish this would be to change our focus from punishment to rehabilitation. We can do this by limiting minor drug offenses and reevaluating the cases of those that are in prison for lesser charges. As I discussed with you earlier, COVID-19 is an issue in prisons across America. There are clear guidelines put out by the CDC, and due to lack of funding in comparison to the number of prisoners in prisons, they are unable to effectively enforce these new measures. Another issue discussed was the prison labor system. Many prisoners are exploited for their labor and put into very hazardous conditions and treated very poorly by common labor standards. A solution to this problem is to introduce new standard of regulation for these labor programs. This will be enforced by a yearly random check on the labor situation in each prison. Thank you to everyone who listened to the end. A big thanks to George, Ray, and Jeremiah for coming on to talk with me today. Make sure you tune in next Friday for our discussion about the death penalty.